You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this morning. We turn once again to the book of Revelation. Before our break for Advent and Christmas, we were dealing with the book of Revelation, and we pick up the thread again where we left off. In 2011, we stopped with chapter 12 of Revelation. So we begin with Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 14, verse 5. And this is also the text for this morning's sermon. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns, seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and, and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, 
Let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him a 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a rushing waters and like a, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered His firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. I preach to you this morning then from Revelation chapter 13 as well as the first five verses of Revelation 14. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We've just read a rather long scripture passage and text. Revelation 13 and part of Revelation 14. So what do you, what do you think? Rather scary stuff, right? It's almost the script for some kind of Hollywood horror movie. And not exactly what you would read to your children or grandchildren before they go to bed. If you do, I can almost predict they'll wake up with a few nightmares and you'll have some wide-eyed children crying and standing at your bed in the middle of the night. Why, even we as adults have a hard time reading, understanding, digesting, much less appreciating this particular part of Holy Writ. And yet, we can, of course, take the easy way out and just ignore it. But that's not really what God wants us to do, is it? We're called upon to read and to tackle His entire Word. The Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and he says it's all useful for something especially for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we have this calling to, in one way or another, appreciate the entire Word of God. And we even have this calling to find something useful, something profitable in whatever we come across, and that also includes this part of the book of Revelation. Yes, even scary monsters serve some higher, better, and I dare say useful purpose. Well, if that's the case, then let's look again. And as I've told you often, let's dig a little deeper. And we do so convinced that also this part of the Word comes to us by the Holy Spirit and pays dividends. I preached to you on the theme, Two Beasts, One Lamb. And we're going to see that our text is a, a threefold call, a call to endure, a call to discern, and a call to, to look. So I've changed that, that third point. This sermon was prepared very early on in the week, and 
Upon reflecting, I thought I'd change the third point instead of to persevere, to look, as we'll see in chapter 14. Well, beloved, chapter 13 opens and immediately John sees a beast coming out of the sea. And the beast, he says, has ten horns, seven heads, as well as ten crowns on his horns. Hard to imagine what that looks like. But notice this beast is also a composite beast, so to speak, because he resembles a leopard, a a bear, and a lion. If you know your scriptures, you also know that in some ways the description of this beast runs parallel to what you can find in Daniel chapter 7. You'll understand we don't have time this morning to go into every particular aspect of our rather long text, but in any case, to try to draw out some of the main points. And when we do that, it becomes clear that this beast from the sea really embodies all kinds of ungodly characteristics. This is not some cute, cuddly monster. No, he's ugly, grotesque, and he's evil. Each of his seven heads carries its as a blasphemous name. So who is the beast, this beast? What does this beast represent or symbolize? Well, throughout history, many have said that this beast actually stands for Rome and for the Roman Empire. Rome, with all of its evil pretensions and all of its depraved ways. But you know, such a a particular view is not without problems. For, you know, while Rome's power was great, it was also limited and restricted. It, It never reached everywhere and touched everyone. But yet, the power of this beast does. Verse 3 refers to the whole world. And verse 7 says that it was given or he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So John is, is obviously also looking here into the future. He's looking beyond Rome, beyond the, the first century. Indeed, John is, is looking to that time, you can say, when the man of lawlessness described in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 will appear. He's looking towards that particular day when the abomination that causes desolation described by the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 13 will arise. He's thinking of this hideous antichrist figure who will use his power to crush God's people everywhere. You see, this beast isn't satisfied with local dominion or domination. He wants to rule over everyone, everything, everywhere. But then it also has to be said that at bottom, this is not so much about ruling as it is about worship. Read verse 4 and you can hear how the dragon or the devil wants to be worshipped and how the beast too is to be worshipped. Read verse 8, which predicts that all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And read verse 4, the last part, and notice the the religious awe in the questions. Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? 
And you know, in those last words, you find an echo. You find a, a false echo of what is often said about our God. Way back in Exodus 15, Miriam sang her song to God about His marvelous deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt and the Red Sea. And in that song, she asks at a certain point, who is like you? Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? And you may recall the words from Micah 7. Who is a God like you who pardons sin, who forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is like God? That's an Old Testament refrain. But notice here in Revelation 13, it becomes a satanic refrain. Who is like the beast? As if he's divine. As if he's God. As if he's worthy of worship. Yet worship him, people do. And those who do not worship the beast are persecuted. Verse 7 says that he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. The dragon uses this beast from the sea to make war on the saints. And together they make it their aim to eradicate every believer or else to make them bow before the beast. There is no neutrality here. You either worship the beast or you die. Yes, and many, it says, will heed the call of the beast. They will worship him. They will march in lockstep with him. Maybe a little while ago, some of you caught glimpses of this funeral of that North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-il. And did you see the thousands of soldiers goose-stepping their way behind this funeral car? And did you see the huge multitudes wailing and crying their eyes out? That's a bit of a picture of how it will be in the days to come. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And that's a rather gruesome picture. And that's a rather dismal future as well as a terrifying spectacle. And yet, it should not, I dare say to you this morning, uh, make us as believers panic or run for the hills. And why not? Well, because there are several things that we need to take note of in our text. The first thing has to do with that little word, given. You you find it in verse 5, the beast was given a mouth. You find it in verse 7 as well, he was given, given authority. In both cases, the, the beast is given something. But who gives it to him? Well, some say it's the dragon. After all, in verse 2, we read, the dragon gave the beast his power. So the dragon, or the devil, is the giver here. 
And yet, beloved, that doesn't tell the whole story. For if the giving is done by the dragon or the devil, it, it would not have been for a limited time. Notice verse 5 says that the beast only has 42 months in which to exercise his authority. In other words, that's Scripture's way of saying that his time is limited. It's restricted. It's, it's curtailed. He doesn't have a free reign. This is not a blank check. And so we ask again, who gives this limited time to the beast? And there's really only one answer, and that's God. God is the ultimate giver here. God limits the beast. God and God alone does it. Of course, you're going to say, why? I don't know. You can ask, but I don't know. What I do know is that this, this henchman of Satan is not a, a free agent. He too is used, being used by God for his inscrutable ways and purposes. There are limits on him. And you know, that should be an encouragement for all the saints. For it means that neither the dragon nor the beast are in a position of ultimate control or of unlimited power. In one way or another, and I don't understand why, and I don't think you do either, they are still under God's dominion, God's power, God's sway. Even when war is made against the saints, there is still this glimmer of hope. And then perhaps you ask hope for whom? Well, John says in verse 8, for all whose names have been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. If you're in this book, this book of life, you will not worship the beast. And if you are in this book, you will worship the Lamb. Oh, and notice, too, what it says about the Lamb. The, the Nave and, and other translations have a bit of a hard time with the original Greek words here. They refer to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And, and we wonder, what does that mean? It almost sounds like some kind of continuous sacrifice, but that's not it. It'd be better to, to read this in, in keeping with what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 and 20 that he was chosen before the creation of the world. Already before the world was made, this lamb gave himself. Already then he gave himself over to be slain. In other words, this redemption that God is working is something that was planned already long ago. Its origin lies in those days before creation. Its origin is from of old. And that means it, it cannot be easily derailed or ruined. 
Neither the dragon or the beast can undo it. It will stand no matter what. And so, beloved, as believers, we have a God who is sovereign. And we have a God whose plans for us will not fail. And taken together, that should give us courage and endurance in the face of persecution. In the verses 9 and 10, John quotes some words from the prophet Jeremiah about captivity and being killed. And he adds, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. In other words, he's calling on us to submit to whatever comes our way. He's telling us to brace ourselves for what is coming. He's calling on us to endure. And you may know that call is not exactly unusual. Did the Lord Jesus himself not tell us that we needed to be prepared to, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him? He didn't say, take up your air mattress and float around in the sea somewhere. No, your cross. And did the apostles not stress the same thing? Truly, all of God's people need to be ready to give up their lives. We should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes over the whole world and attacks us as well. But rather, we should brace ourselves and get ready to endure whatever evil may come our way. Confronted by an evil empire that seeks to crush us, we should heed this call for patient endurance and faithfulness. So, beloved, the first thing you need to see here is a call to endure. But there's also a call to discern. And this call comes, you can see, in connection with the second beast, the beast that comes up out of the earth. Notice that this beast has only two horns and that he speaks like a dragon, whatever that sounds like, I'm not sure. Notice, too, that this second beast exercises authority on behalf of the first beast. They're a bit of a tag team. They're in cahoots together. And many commentators think that the first beast has to do with political power and the second beast has to do with religious power. But whatever the case may be, there is very little doubt that this second beast is very much in the imitation business. If you read carefully, you see time and time again, he, he imitates the Lord Jesus. He has a fatal wound, just like Jesus. He stages a miraculous recovery, just like Jesus. He performs great miraculous signs, just like Jesus. He breathes out power, just like Jesus. You see, this beast, this second beast, is nothing else than a religious copycat and a deceiver. 
And indeed, there's a massive amount of deception going on here. Yes, and notice this deception happens especially through signs and wonders, but then false signs and wonders. If you think that signs and wonders are worked only by God, you need to think again. Also, this beast knows how to razzle-dazzle people, how to make them cry out in awe and, and bow down in worship. He's great at impressing people. Using the tools in his arsenal, this beast deceives, it says in verse 14, the inhabitants of the earth. Most people fall for him. They're led astray by him. And you know, also that's nothing new. Way back when, Moses reminded the people of Israel about false prophets. About being on constant guard against them. And you know, the same kind of warning rings out time and time again in the New Testament, doesn't it? Imposters are coming. False miracles are going to happen. Great displays of power will take place. People will ooh and awe all over the place. They'll be impressed. And they will be deceived. And as well, they'll come under immense pressure. John goes on to describe the fact that everyone will be marked. Verse 16 and 17, everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, will be forced to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Notice the pressure here is especially economic. You need the mark if you're going to do business, you need it for work, for housing, for clothing, for food. Without this mark, you and your children will starve. So what's a man supposed to do? Jesus says, or John says, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. That's another way of saying this calls for, for discernment, for, for insight, for, for understanding. But then you may ask, well, discernment with respect to what? Well, well, you know, first perhaps discernment with respect to choice. Many people, when they face huge economic pressure, feel that they have no choice. And no doubt many people will say, well, if we're going to eat, we're going to survive, we're just going to have to worship the beast. But you know, there is a choice that we shouldn't overlook. It's a choice to reject the mark. And if needs be, even to die. You know, sometimes the compromises and the concessions that life 
demands are just too great. You know, your life is precious. I'll give you that freely. But it surely is not more precious than being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know as well as I that throughout the ages, countless believers have chosen martyrdom over the denial of their Lord and Savior. I'd rather die than disown him or betray him. So discern. There is a choice. It may be a difficult choice. Very difficult. But there is a choice here. But then discern something else as well. It has to do with the number 666, the number of the beast. You know, lots of books have been or still are being written. You can go to any bookstore you want, Christian bookstore especially, and you'll find all kinds of books about the number 666. They could fill the Langley Library quite easily. So who is 666? Again, countless commentaries will say, well, that's the Emperor Nero. How do they figure that out? Well, it's a bit complicated, but what you do is you assign a number to each letter of the alphabet, and then you either take that number in series or you add it up as a sum total. Now, this is a bit tricky. A stands for 1, B stands for 2, C stands for 3, D stands for 4, E stands for 5, right? So, if you take my name, my first name, James, 10, 10th number, 10th letter, 1 for the A, 13 for the M, 5 for the E, 19 for the S. That's the series. Or if you add it all together, you get 48. I only get up to 48. I'm really disappointed. But Nero apparently gets up to 66 because he's got a lot more names than I have. And that's why 666 stands for Nero. Now, that's interesting. But it's nonsense. It's inaccurate. It's speculative. 666 doesn't add up in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. And, and, you know, I even have in my study, I have a, a, a Greek-English dictionary or Hebrew dictionary, and, and it tells me that 666 stands for woman. So all the ladies here bear the dreaded number. But again, that's not, that's not true. Forget. I would say to you, forget about trying to figure out who 666 is. Instead, there is a lot better approach. Realize that 666 is the number of man. You know, three is the number for God. Four is the number for creation. Seven is the number of perfection. Twelve is the number of the church. Six is the number of man. It's a human number. 
And six repeated or multiplied three times is still a human number. And it's also, notice, a human number that never gets to seven. It always remains short of perfection. Now, what does that tell you about the number of the beast? Well, it reminded the church then, and it should remind us today that this beast is human. That means he's vulnerable. He's limited. He's fallible. You don't really have to live in dread of him. He's only a man. He's just a creature. You see, using the wisdom supplied by God, you and I are able to cut him down to size. He's only 666. Poor guy. He has no way to get to 777, much less to 888, which is, John says, far beyond the matter or the number of perfection. So, beloved, discern. Discern in terms of choice and in terms of number. Don't fear the six, six, six. But then, if we are supposed to endure and to discern, there's one more thing, and that's the call. It's not very difficult in some ways. It's the call to look. You find that call, and that's why I've included it in our text this morning. You find that call at the beginning of chapter 14. You know, here we've been looking at beasts, and and you think after a while the world is filled with scary creatures and horrible monsters, but now we're told to look and look to the Lamb. And notice the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And that's not just Jerusalem. No, that's the center of the entire creation of the universe. That's where Jesus Christ dwells. And notice along with him there dwells 144,000. You know, when you read Revelation 13, you think about the church and you look at it and you say, the church is toast. Persecuted, eradicated, liquidated. It's gone. And then you turn to chapter 14. What do you see? 144,000. Remember we dealt with that number back in chapter 7 of Revelation? It either stands for all the believing Jews or the totality of God's people throughout the ages. And all these people have a name. Not a number. A name. They have the name of the Lamb. And they have the the name of the Father. Written on their foreheads. Indicating they are the possession of God the Father and God the Son. And what a possession they are. Notice John hears them singing a new song. 
They're holding a recital in the presence of God, of the four living creatures and the elders. And it's a unique recital as well because their song is special. John says, verse 3, no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. This is a song only God's people can sing. And notice the singers are special too because it says they are pure because they didn't defile themselves with women. Now the women get it again. What's it mean? Well, you need to understand the background. The background here is the ancient world, Greek-Roman world of temples, temple prostitutes, holy hookers. If you want to worship the gods and the goddesses, you had to go into these temples. You had to have so-called religious sex, whatever that is. You defiled yourself. But it says here, these people didn't do that. They resisted. They refused. It also says not only have their bodies not been corrupted, but their speech has not been corrupted either. They're blameless. So what is John doing by painting this type of a picture? He's reminding the suffering saints then, as well as the suffering saints all around the world today, to look up in faith. He's telling them to remain a singing people, a pure people, a faithful people. And he's showing them that one day they're going to be a triumphant people. And they accomplish that not by looking at themselves, not by focusing on those two beasts and by fearing them, but looking nonstop at the Lamb. The Lamb of God. And following Him. The Lamb will see them and us through. The Lamb will shield us. The Lamb will protect us after all the dust of persecution and suffering is settled. We will be standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb of God. So how does one deal with scary monsters? And ugly beasts. By all the turmoil and tumult yet to come. By looking to Jesus. By following Him. Wherever He goes, wherever He leads. Following Him to glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.